Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to this episode of At The Margin. I have a great episode lined up with Tim Hartford, Oxford economist and all-round economic raconteur. Tim joins us to discuss various stories surrounding statistics, how we can get it wrong, such as when our emotions influence our interpretation of what we see around us, and offers some basic rules of thumb when it comes to making sense of the information that we are presented with. So Tim is an economist, journalist and broadcaster, an author of many books, including The Next 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, Messy, and The Undercover Economist. Tim's most recent book is entitled How to Make the World Add Up, 10 Rules for Thinking Differently About Numbers, and the content of that book is the basis for much of our discussion today. If you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe to Patreon at patreon.com forward slash at the margin. We're on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at the margin. Okay then, enjoy the conversation. So this podcast, we have a mix of, I suppose, hardcore economists and people who just have a general interest in economics. So we have people who would perhaps be familiar with a lot of the statistics and stuff that you talk about, and people who are perhaps less familiar, but take an interest in some of the issues that, that you're discussing. And perhaps you could start off with assuming no prior knowledge. And one thing you touch on nicely in your book, which might be interesting to a lot of people, is how... Perhaps statistics can deceive or how our interpretation of statistics is not necessarily um, perfect, 100% perfect. And you had one example in your book of Yale graduates which, which, and their earnings, which uh, jumped out at me. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about that or perhaps some other example that comes to mind to you that, that might be of interest. Sure. So I, I think the uh, the example you have in mind is actually, it, it is in my book, but it's originally from a book called Darryl, uh, by Daryl Huff called How to Lie with Statistics. Um, and I think it's a very interesting and I think important story about that little book uh, in its own right. So uh, we should talk about that. But but yeah, he um, he describes a, um, a survey of graduate uh, salaries. Uh, and these are alumni of, of Yale University. And uh, uh, apparently the, you know, the average graduate salary is something like half a million dollars. He, he's writing in the 50s, so... I'm, I'm adjusting for inflation. Uh, and um, he's a little bit sceptical of, of this claim that the average Yale graduate salary is half a million dollars. 
uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that when you look at it a little bit more, um, in a bit more detail, you realize it's all self-reported. So um, anybody who wants to exaggerate their salary can exaggerate their salary. Anybody who wants to not mention any salary at all can just refuse to reply. Um, so there's a huge response bias and, and possibly some other biases as well. And the other thing that's going on is uh, these are the people who that Yale University could could find. So anybody who had a nervous breakdown and is now uh, sofa surfing will not be covered in the uh, speech, whereas it uh, will not be covered in the survey. Whereas anybody who Yale is keeping very close tabs on, possibly because they're potential donors to Yale, will be, you, for sure, you can bet they'll be in the survey. So uh, this is just a, one of the things that Daryl Huff did very well, which was to say, OK, we got this number, but what is really going on behind, behind this number? And these are not necessarily super technical questions. They're just really asking, uh, what is actually going on here and where did this number really come from? Um, but I said I wanted to, to talk a little bit more about Daryl Huff because I, I begin my book, How to Make the World Add Up, with a discussion of his book, How to Lie with Statistics. I loved his book. I read it as a teenager. It's, it's funny. It's, it's quick. It's witty. Lots of insight. Um, but it's also an extremely cynical book. It's basically a book that says, just don't believe what you read because it's all lies. It's all tricks. It's like you, when you go to a magic show... Like everything you see is a trick. Like there's no, there's no real magic. There's nothing. It's all a trick. And I'm going to tell you how the trick is done. I'm going to tell you where the rabbit comes from when the magician pulls it out of a hat. And that's fun. Um, but what made me uncomfortable about that as I thought about it is, well, when it comes to statistics, some of this is not tricks. Some of this is, is real. And there's real insight to be gained about the world by using statistics. And this is not just a theoretical objection. So in 1954, the same year that Daryl Huff published How to Lie with Statistics, Austin Bradford Hill and Richard Dahl, two British epidemiologists, through some careful statistical work, published some of the first really compelling evidence that smoking cigarettes is massively increases the risk that you'll get lung cancer. And they both quit smoking in the course of their investigations. So this is in the same year, 1954, one guy saying, it's a trick. You've got these other two guys saying, no, it's a tool. This is a tool through which we understand the world. And that those are two different visions of statistics. And I'm trying to persuade people, sure, look out for tricks. Don't be fooled. But remember that statistics are a tool. The, the twist in the tale is that Daryl Huff, the author of How to Lie with Statistics, eventually ended up working for Big Tobacco as a lobbyist, showing up, testifying in front of Congress, saying, oh, yeah, yeah, all this epidemiology, it's all kind of, it's all fake news, that stuff, you can't believe that. And turning that scepticism into, into really um, uh, you know, very, very low cynical attacks on this very important base of evidence. And the methods that he used and the methods that the tobacco industry used have been used again and again and again by climate change deniers, by populists and so on, to persuade people not to look at the evidence and not to take the experts seriously. So this stuff matters. Absolutely. And you touched on something very interesting there. It can be used in a, in a negative way to try and cloud what actually is, is the information. And you touched on the climate change deniers and accusations of fake news. And it seems to, to touch on maybe 
if something comes out, maybe that, that Donald Trump doesn't like, he accuses it of being fake news. Is there something we can learn from this experience when it comes to the tobacco company's approach of sort of clouding the truth when it comes to dealing with accusations of fake news and how we sort of p- pick our way through? But what should we interpret as, as fake news or what should we interpret as, as being, you know, actual fact? Oh, so there's all kinds of ways to approach that question. I suppose the 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 first thing I'd say is simply encouraging people to be more more doubtful of what's said is not a is not a straightforwardly good idea. Just to say, oh, people should be more skeptical. Um, uh, the the sort of advice that you you often hear people giving about science communication, or you know, you should emphasize uncertainty, emphasize that we don't know, uh, tell people to be skeptical of claims. Um, you know, that's all good advice, except that this is has been m- mutated and hijacked by climate denialists, by the tobacco lobby, um, to doubt really, really good, solid statistical work. The whole strategy of the tobacco lobby was emphasize uncertainty, emphasize expert disagreement, uh, call for more research, say, you know, we need to look into it more. It's all very, very complicated. Don't do anything too hasty. Um this is really powerful stuff because, of course, the the, the importance of of expressing uncertainty and and being skeptical and of of you know healthy argument is this is fundamental to the process of science. This is fundamental to the process of democracy, but you can also hijack it. So, you know, watch out for that. Is my uh, is my advice? And remember, there's there's more to statistical journalism than just fact checking. Uh, mm just sort of saying, oh, a politician said a thing yesterday and turns out that was a lie. Uh, that That's not enough. That's important. Journalists need to do it. But that only gets you so far. And, and it doesn't get you that far at all. You need to get people interested in what's true as well as in what's not true. Okay, so one of the things you'd go through then is uh, how you interpret data and how maybe perhaps you might need to check yourself in certain ways to make sure that you're interpreting things correctly and one thing I think that comes naturally to economists is perhaps taking the emotion out of interpretation and maybe trying to look at it with quote-unquote rational type of, of viewpoint but you give some nice examples of how perhaps emotions can distort how we how we view our data and I think this is something a lot of behavioral economists would be very familiar with this sort of ostrich effect and these sort of effects I wonder, could you tell us a bit about that and some interesting uh, insights there, maybe some tools that we could use going forward? So, yeah, the, it, how we feel about a claim is enormously influential as to whether we're willing to believe it or not. I mean, we like to think of ourselves as logical and influenced by evidence and influenced by facts. Um, and we are influenced by evidence and influenced by facts, but we're also influenced by our, our ideology, our cultural identity, our preconceptions, our emotions. Um, and you, I mean, you can see this. The most straightforward illustration of this is simply if you just look at data from the US, and you say, well, um, who thinks climate change is a problem and who thinks climate change is not a problem? And the first thing you say is, well, Republicans think it's not a problem and Democrats think it's a problem, which, by the way, didn't used to be true. 30 years ago, there wasn't this uh, polarization to nearly nearly so much extent. And then you, when you drill a bit deeper and you go, OK, what about educated Republicans and educated Democrats? Like, if people are influenced by evidence and facts, they should at least be closer together 
um, they should be closer to the scientific consensus uh, and less educated Republicans and less educated Democrats. Well, they'll be thinking with their guts and they'll be further apart. But the opposite is true. So highly educated Republicans are, are more sceptical of climate change than less educated Republicans. And highly ed educated Democrats are, are more committed in their belief that climate change is a problem than less educated Democrats. So that shows you there's, there's more going on here than simple uh, facts. It's how we deploy the facts to justify our preconceptions. Um, I could give you loads more examples, but the thing that really alerted me to this was... Uh, it was just the experience of, of fact-checking the Brexit referendum in the UK, uh, where we could sort of talk all we liked about facts and, and just to realise no, nobody seemed to care what the facts actually were. People had very strong feelings before, you know, pro or anti-Brexit, but it was all about their, their own preconceptions and their cultural identity. So I just thought, if I'm going to write a book about how to think about the world using numbers... It can't just be about the numbers. It's got to be about these other aspects of human cognition, our, our feelings and, our, and our, our biases and our filters. So the, the first chapter of the book makes the point, I, I give 10 rules of thumb in the book, and the first rule of thumb is just notice your emotions. How does it make you feel? Um, you can't overcome your emotions. You, I think you probably don't want to ignore your emotions completely, but simply to notice the, a particular statistical claim is 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 the thing that it, you're, you're finding threatening for example to your political worldview um you you want to disbelieve it you want to deny it or alternatively you feel triumphant it's like oh yeah i knew this all along and this just proves i was right if you're noticing that you're having those feelings it might just slow you down a little bit before you retweet them or repeat them and you might start thinking a little bit more carefully and just being a bit more curious as to what's behind them. So, uh, yeah, I know it sounds like a mindfulness meditation um, piece of advice, but yeah, be mindful of your feelings before you do anything else. Um, I mean, more generally, I, I argue that a lot of the statistical advice that most people need is not actually complicated. It's most people, you don't need a lot. Google will help. A calculator will help. Uh, fundamentally, to evaluate the claims that are, are made, it's fairly simple questions and the right kind of curiosity of spirit will deliver most of what you need, most of the insight that you need. Absolutely. Um, I think that's good advice for the layperson just interpreting data, but also the researcher, because if you get us, if you're halfway through a paper and you get a certain result and you think your eyes light up and think this is a great result you know you need to check yourself make sure that uh, that, that that you're actually going through all the other checks along the way um, your, your your emotions can come into play in that context also um, I, one thing that you actually sort of related to that was you sort of, you sort of mentioned that okay well we have these numbers and we can interpret the numbers and just to check how we feel about things and you made a you have a story in your book then about Irving Fisher and who uh, based a lot of his conclusions based on numbers, but yet his attitude or his, his, his approach to things maybe influenced the outcome. Maybe you could tell us that story. Yeah, so it's, it's one of the last stories in the book is about uh, Irving Fisher and John Maynard Keynes, these two, two of the greatest economists of the 20th century. And by coincidence, also two men who were very interested in, in investing and they thought that their insights in economics their 
um, economic connections, their um, familiarity with the economic data, their reshaping of economic theory, all of these things would help them make money in, in financial markets. Uh, and um, so they both set about trying to do this in their own ways. They had their own investment strategies. And uh, they both missed the, the Great Wall Street crash of 1929. They didn't see it coming. However, Irving Fisher was ruined, his, his both financially and reputationally, by the crash. Whereas John Maynard Keynes died uh, about 17 years later, died a millionaire. So what, what happened? How come these two guys in apparently similar positions, the t- probably the two most famous economists on the planet at the time, uh, made this huge mistake and then it caught Fisher out and, and Keynes just kind of rolled on? And in a nutshell, the answer is that Keynes changed his mind and therefore changed his investment strategy, whereas Fisher was, wasn't willing to change his mind and lost enormous amounts of money as a result because he kept thinking the markets would change, borrow more money, you know, keep going, keep backing himself, and he just got deeper and deeper into a hole. So uh, I, w- I just got interested in the, the story of the, those two men and what was it about Keynes and Fisher that led them to take such a different view. And I, I think it was partly that Fisher was more publicly committed. So there's some interesting psychological research. When you make very public statements, um, you're making yourself stupider, basically, uh, which is a shame because we want people who've thought hard about problems to make public statements. Um, but every time you make a public commitment, you, you're immediately and instinctively starting to dig in to, to justify Uh, that. Um, So Fisher was more public about what he was doing. He was publishing uh, articles in the national newspaper about his investment strategy. He famously, two weeks before the Wall Street crash, said stocks have reached a new and permanently high plateau, which for many people, that is the, the only thing they know about Irving Fisher is he's the guy who said that. He really backed himself into a corner. As Keynes didn't have the same personal exposure he didn't have the same reputational exposure but the other thing was that um fisher i think just trusted the numbers too much he just felt that the world was fundamentally if you got enough data and you thought it hard enough about it fundamentally the world was predictable mm-hmm. Keynes never never thought that i mean famously said about certain long-range forecasts there was no scientific basis on which to form any probability whatsoever we simply do not know so that difference in how they thought about uncertainty and what was knowable and through the statistics and what wasn't uh, really undid Irving Fisher whereas Keynes just kind of dusted himself down and, and kept going and had an awful lot of fun in the meantime. I think one lesson is don't be afraid to admit a mistake because it can propagate and create further problems down the line Okay, a few other things then that that uh, that struck me as interesting, and it's sort of it's sort of relevant, I think, nowadays. Um, one issue was how data recorded can affect maybe interpretation, comparisons, and one other story that that I read was in relation to newborns in hospitals and how they were recorded and how this can lead to comparability problems. And it struck me as being important when it comes to interpreting COVID results because different countries have different testing regimes and therefore results are not necessarily directly comparable without that knowing that context or there might have been different 
other un- underlying factors such as different um, demographic structure or whatever. Uh, yeah, it might be interesting if you're able to tell us a bit about some of the lessons that might be learned. It, it, it was really striking. So um, I spoke to uh, a a doctor whose name I believe was Lucy Smith. I think Dr. Lucy Smith, if I remember right. And, it, and if I remember wrong, I apologise to Dr. Smith. She was... Um, she was telling me about dealing with this issue where infant mortality was higher in um, in one city than another in, in England, and she was she was comparing her her a city near where she studied uh, to um, and did research to London, and the demographics seemed similar. The kind of rates of deprivation, for example, the ages of the mothers, all all seemed pretty similar, but the for some reason, the hospitals in London had uh, lower infant mortality rates. So they were trying to figure out what they were doing wrong um, in her home city, and and what you know what can they do to fix the problem? And as she looked into it more and more, she realised that uh, it was actually a, that there was no real difference in medical outcomes for these mothers and babies. Um, instead, it was about where a particular statistical line had been drawn, and um, it's clearly very. This is a very sensitive issue. The question is: At what point? If you imagine a very, very uh, premature delivery of a of a baby, um, at what point do you say that that was a miscarriage? And at what point do you say, well, that that that's infant mortality? That the baby was born alive, maybe took one breath maybe was alive for a few seconds or a few minutes and then died um these are heartbreaking situations but what she found was that in uh in london the london doctors would tend to say that was a late miscarriage and therefore not a not infant mortality it doesn't count towards the infant mortality statistics whereas uh in the city near where she was researching uh that was counted as the baby was born alive and then died shortly afterwards. So it counted towards the infant mortality statistics. Even though it's the same tragedy, it's the same terrible experience for the, for the mother, um, it's being recorded in different ways. And she, she concluded that there, w- there was basically no difference. It was purely a statistical recording difference. Um, other researchers came to similar conclusions about a worrying uptick in infant mortality in the UK, they found that um, as far as they could tell, it could be completely explained by more and more hospitals saying, and we're not going to just say this is a miscarriage because a lot of the parents aren't, uh, don't feel that does justice to their experience. They, they want it recorded as a, as a live birth and, and then death. Um, so that just a change in the culture, a change in recording practices was demonstrating a rise in infant mortality um, and there are also differences in the way that um, statistics are recorded internationally. So uh, if you look at, um, I forget the exact details of it. So the US has a very, very high infant mortality rate, um, which is partly reflective of, I think, serious problems in the US uh, US healthcare system and in structural inequalities in the US. But it's not completely that. It is also partly a difference in recording patterns. So if you... Uh, if you look only at babies born after, I forget the exact cutoff, maybe after 26 weeks, I may have that wrong. But if you have a certain cutoff and you say, we're only going to look at babies born after that, the US infant mortality rate approximately halves. And the f- 
mortality rate in Finland doesn't budge at all. So from the US being just a dramatically, enormously worse than Finland, it moves to being still worse, but but not nearly as dramatic. Um, so the importance of this story is just to, I think, we have to be curious about what it is that's being counted behind these statistics. Mm. When you say, oh, infant mortality, you immediately think, oh, I know what that means. But th- then that, actually, the the distinction between a fetus and a baby is one of the most... Um, you know, morally and philosophically important distinctions and divisive distinctions in the world. How could you imagine that a statistician is just going to be able to draw that line and we don't need to worry about it? It's, it will make a difference. Um, and it's important for us to ask those questions for two reasons. Partly because if we don't ask about definitions, we don't really understand what's being said. We don't understand anything if you don't understand what's being counted. Um, and the second reason is we should be curious about the human reality behind the numbers. Uh, it's you know it's it's interesting and it's also the humane attitude I think to have. These are not just data points. These are not just graphs. There's this statement misattributed to Stalin that one death is a tragedy and a million deaths are just a statistic, uh, and that has that aphorism has stuck because it really gets at a, a really unpleasant truth about the way we we do think about a lot of statistical suffering. I, I think one lesson I take from that is. When you see a a statistic to try and you know be somewhat skeptical of, of what's going on, but or try to understand what's going on behind it and what, what's driving the results that, that that you see. Um, so one thing then as well, actually, sort of slightly related to that is um, how things are recorded, and I think statisticians and are quite particular about how things are recorded and how making sure things are certain and and removing vagueness. Whereas when it comes to political decisions. Sometimes a very good political outcome, a very good diplomatic outcome is one that is constructively vague and vagueness can be a positive in that regard. So I think Brexit is one example where Brexit negotiations are trying to find some some element of, of vagueness that works in a world where you can't really have vagueness when it comes to trade negotiations. So how do we square that circle then? I think you touched on this slightly in your book in terms of this political desire for vagueness versus this sometimes... Uh, reality where we need where we're dealing with with hard numbers yeah i mean it can go the other way of course so the politicians can be telling you that something is uh, cast iron certain uh while the statisticians are saying well it's actually a lot more complicated than you make it out so i don't uh, you know it cuts both ways but the yeah i mean ultimately if you're going to um as a statistician i mean they're sometimes dismissed as bean counters there are there bean counters but um Actually, uh, once you start counting real things in the world, it's not usually beans. It's normally a lot more complicated than that. There are issues of definition. Um, my, uh, my friend and colleague, Michael Blastland, has a really lovely little example. He says, OK, just look, look over the field. You see two, two sheep in the field. Uh, so how many sheep are there in the field? And, you know, well, there are two. He said, well, actually, uh, one of them's pretty young. Might be a lamb. Is it still two sheep in the field? Okay, so maybe is it one and a half sheep? Is it just one sheep? Um, oh, actually, one of the sheep is a is a ewe, is heavily pregnant. In fact, just at the cusp of giving birth, she's giving birth right now. Is it, so? Is it one sheep, two sheep, three sheep? Um, and you know, the, the world is full of examples like this, where um, to, in order to collate the statistics, at some point the statistician has to draw the line. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with drawing the line, but you'd need to. Uh, we need to not fool ourselves um, 
you know, wave away those distinctions and say they don't matter. You need to understand what it is that's actually being um, being measured and, and being defined. Otherwise, we're, you know, we just fool ourselves before we've even begun. Okay. And um, so slightly related to that then is uh, when, we're, when it comes to measuring these things and we have different bodies that are in charge of measurement and a lot of countries would have, you know, national statistics. In, in Ireland, we have the CSO and the UK, there's the ONS responsible for, for taking charge of census and other surveys um, that are of national importance. But you touch on sometimes where perhaps there can be some scenarios there have been sort of tweaking of the data. Um, and you point to maybe in, in the Argentinian case in reporting inflation. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about how that came about. Oh, yeah. It was extraordinary, yeah. So, I mean, the, the point I'm trying to make in that chapter is that the, the men and women who are gathering official statistics for us are doing a, a really important job. This is like the, the statistical bedrock of everything else, all the academic theories and all the... There are commercial data providers and the political decisions and all everything is built on this statistical foundation and you need to make sure that it's solid and we, we should appreciate these people because they're often um well uh they're doing more important work than we often recognize and they're also being braver than we sometimes uh, give them credit for because there are instances where they really had to stand up for their beliefs so this example in in argentina um was a statistician called graciela bevacqua who this is a I think 2007, if I'm right, that sort of, you know, about 13, 14 years ago, was was basically told um, that the Argentine government didn't really like the way the inflation statistics were, were coming out. Um, this is a populist government under Nestor Kirchner and then later under uh, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, but to compare a populist husband and wife. Uh, so she was told to um, round down the monthly inflation statistics, um, it's like we've run out of decimal points. And uh, so like 2.7% monthly inflation, could you round that down to 2%? You know, 1.8% monthly inflation, round that down to 1%, um, which is com- obviously completely absurd. It's, it's probably, um, and once you start compounding those things over the course of a year, it's the difference between, I don't know, um, could be 25% inflation and maybe, uh, you know, 10 or 11 percent inflation uh which incidentally was pretty much at the time the difference between what argentina was claiming its inflation when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Rate was and what external observers believed its inflation rate was. So she was told to to do all this ridiculous stuff, and finally she produced a monthly figure that uh, was unacceptable. She was uh, sent on a mandatory vacation. When she came back, she'd been sacked, uh, or rather she'd been given a new job as a librarian on one-third the salary. And then she resigned and started trying to put together inflation statistics herself as a consultant to a a private group. Uh, And then she was fined, I think, a quarter of a million dollars for wrongful advertising. So this is an extraordinary level of persecution for someone whose main crime was to try to tell the truth to the Argentine people about prices in Argentina, which is an extremely Mm. important job, because if you don't know what the inflation rate is, very, very hard to make sensible decisions about anything. Absolutely. And it really highlights the importance of independence between these statistical bodies and whatever political influence might be there to make sure that everything is reliable and we can trust the statistics that are put out because they are it's, it's, no, it is, it is important because, um, I mean, it's easy to look at somewhere like Argentina and say, oh, well, you know, the, uh, it's kind of an emerging market, not very strong democracy, um, you know, couldn't, couldn't happen here. Um, but one of the things that I, uh, one of the uh, episodes that I found very interesting was to reflect on uh, Sir Derek Rayner in the UK in the 1980s under uh, Margaret Thatcher's government. He was asked to come and think about how statistics should be used and he was a captain of industry he ran marks and spencers the kind of high street uh, clothing and food retailer and so he thought of of statistics as a management information system i think this is a very interesting perspective on statistics well the government's in charge of the economy and in charge of the country and you gather the statistics to help the government make better decisions and um if the statistics you're gathering don't help the government make better decisions, well, don't bother with those statistics, um, which on the face of it seems a very sensible attitude to statistics. And of course, that is one of the important things about official statistics is that they do inform government policy. Um, but I, I think it's easy to be seduced by that vision of what statistics are, before, are, are for, because then you, you start to get, well, the statistics aren't really for ordinary people. You know, they're for special people, they're for powerful people, they're for the government, they're not for you and me. Um, and then, well, they don't really need to be published and um, we can spin them any way we like, we can distort them as long as we know what's going on. Um, it leads to, to all sorts of, of problems. And, and I th- it took the UK's Office for National Statistics a long time, I think, to recover from the reputational damage of 
what seemed on the face of it quite a simple proposition, which is, well, statistics are for the government, they're not for the people. But statistics are, are for everybody, and we need to recognise and value that. Absolutely. And even more so nowadays, where we're, we're all plugged into Twitter and sharing. I think Twitter is the perfect platform for sharing visual information for, for figures and graphs because it's it's easier to take in and you're as you're flicking through your twitter feed you see um they, they jump out at you more so than numbers or more so than so than, than words this is something that you touch on as well which i find very interesting in that you know sometimes a pretty graph like a pretty graph will get more attention than an ugly graph but that sort of leads us towards creating pretty graphs that aren't necessarily giving us useful information so I, I wonder, as the consumer of this sort of media, how, how should we respond to that? I yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting judgment call as to what, what we should do and what the graph, graph designers should do, because um, clearly if you have a... I mean, the Victorians didn't used to do a lot of graphs, right? They, they, they used to collect tables of data that were literally were yards long, um, and you'd look at these because they've got every single data point. So it's like taking a really big Excel spreadsheet and just printing it all out. And that, that's what they used to publish. And you, you can't make any sense of, of that. All the data is there, but you can't make any sense of that. So um, it's very useful to visualize data. You can see all kinds of patterns and relationships. Uh, at the same time, it can easily lead us astray. Um, so Alberto Cairo, who... Uh, wrote a, a great book called Why or How Charts Lie, um, which, again, it's like Daryl Huff. It's like, oh, it's all a trick. You can't trust this stuff. I'm not sure Alberto really believes that about charts, but I think it's revealing that we statisticians and we, we geeks, we're so happy to play that role of, oh, yeah, you can't, you can't believe what you read. You can't trust that. You know, it's dangerous. You need to be careful. Anyway, Alberto Cairo wrote this book called How Charts Lie, and he says, look, a chart is a visual argument. A chart is making an argument for a point of view. And once you recognize that, it can be a truthful argument or a false argument. It can be a misleading argument or a very transparent and very clear argument. But, but once you recognize that that's what a chart really is, that the data are being presented in a particular way, uh, calling attention to particular relationships, I think you're in a much better position to make the judgment. Um, but there's basically all the advice I give people about interpreting statistics in general, I would say apply with, with even greater force when it comes to graphs. Um, how does it make you feel? What's your knee-jerk reaction to the graph? And then start, you know, once you've noticed that, start asking questions about where did the data come from and what, what's really going on under the surface of this graph. They do have a real a real power. I, I talk about Florence Nightingale's amazing data visualization work in um, the nineteenth century uh, UK, um, and uh, I mean she uh, she was on the side of the angels. She was making the right argument using graphics to dramatically bolster that argument, and you know, her graphs were shown to Queen Victoria, and I mean she was an amazing communicator. But at the same time, some of the graphs are a bit naughty the way they present the data. The data is, all, data is all there. So you could say, well, it's all honest, but they're presented in very clever ways to lead people towards one conclusion rather than another. Fortunately, in the case of Florence Nightingale, the conclusion was, in fact, the correct one. It's a very interesting story to really get under the surface of. One interesting thing there about the, that whole Florence Nightingale story is that uh, 
she was aware of what she, Queen Victoria would respond to, so she she presented graphs because she thought, well, this would this 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 would be uh, more amenable, which is actually a good lesson for anybody communicating any information is to, to try and understand well, what does the pers- how does the person receive the information best? Absolutely. Where, where, where are they coming from? Where are they coming from? But yeah. Um, but there's, I think, you know, we, if you're, if you're making graphs for, for people to communicate, um, you, you certainly need to think about where they're coming from. You need to think about what is the point that I'm trying to make and be very clear about that. But you also need to be honest with yourself that, you know, am I, Am I misleading people or not? Uh, can I justify the argument that I'm making? And there's nothing wrong with with a polemic. I mean, I've written polemics myself. You know, you could, you know, I write a newspaper column. You can try and persuade people of a particular point of view, but you do have to be honest that that is what you're trying to do. Honest with yourself and uh, honest with the viewer. And there's such a there's a really really simple little example in the um, in the book. Uh, there's a um, a graph, I forget the designer's name, it's death tolls in Iraq, the, the death toll of soldiers in Iraq, I believe. And um, it's, it's a bar chart in red, inverted. Uh, so every day is the number of deaths. Um, and maybe the deaths of civilians, I forget. But because, the, because the, these are red bars coming down from the top of the page, it's like somebody just took a knife and cut a a gaping gash across the top of the page and that gash is just bleeding down. And it's a really visceral um, uh, chart and the title of the chart is Iraq's Bloody Toll. In case there's any mistaking about where... And he won an award for it. It's a great piece of visual communication. But um, another uh, data designer, a guy I know a little bit called Andy Cotgreave, I think purely as a sort of exercise just flipped the same graph. I mean, he literally just took it in Photoshop and flipped it upside down. And then he colored it a kind of soothing corporate blue, sort of like a Facebook blue. Uh, And then he um, just put a new title on the top. I mean, he didn't do anything else, didn't change the axes, nothing. And the new title was uh, Iraq, Deaths on the Decline. It's the same data. It's just a presented in a more straightforward way and with a soothing color scheme and and a reassuring message. And they're both true. I mean, basically, a lot of people died in Iraq and also um, not as many people as, as did last year or the year before. Uh, and it's, just, it's a, such a simple illustration of how powerful these graphics can be at manipulating our emotion. And they're both, I think, perfectly honest, perfectly straightforward presentations of the data. But they're, they're making an argument and we, we need to be conscious of, of that, that that argument is being made. Just before we wrap up, one thing that we're all trying to get to grips with is the effects of COVID and what is the legacy effect and how will it translate through the economy. And one really interesting um, sort of insight was this concept of experienced, experience-induced frugality. So basically how we basically we might become more frugal based on our lived experiences. And that might help explain maybe the recovery from, from COVID. I wonder, could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the, the various uh, studies, um, uh, the, the names coming to mind are Stefan Nagel and Ulrika Malmendier, who I think are based in, in uh, Berkeley, California. Uh, I think other people have done this as well. Just looking at um, how living through particular economic 
times, sort of notable economic or financial experiences influence behaviour. And, and what um, Nagel and Malmendia uh, discovered is that you um, it, the the performance of the stock market during your formative years, which, if I remember rightly, it was like fifteen to thirty or something. It's kind of time at which you might start paying attention to to the market. You might notice news about the market. If the stock market had done really well between the ages of 15 and 30, uh, you would be more likely to have uh, large investments in the stock market. And if the stock market had done poorly, you were were less likely to have invested. And you could compare uh, sort of 50-year-olds who were born in 1940 with 50-year-olds who were born in uh, 1970, for example, and just sort of see whether they'd beha- behaved in a different way with 40-year-olds who were born in 1980 or 40-year-olds who were born in 1960. Then what they found was basically um, people were permanently influenced by these formative experiences. Uh, you, you would invest less in the stock market if um, the stock market seemed to be a bad investment at the time you first started paying attention to it. And I think there's more general ex- um, evidence on that. So, uh scarring from uh, recessions or unemployment influences our behavior influences precautionary saving uh if you've grown up in tough times you'd be more likely to save more for a rainy day if you haven't experienced those tough times at a formative moment run up more debt have less of a buffer um so that i think is an interesting um interesting sort of little corner of economics and it suggests that uh, the recovery from you know the latest economic catastrophe, this, the pandemic, it's going to be influenced by uh, rigidities in the labour market. It's going to be influenced by how quickly we can get the public health crisis under control. But it might also be influenced by more subtle forces, like our own attitudes to to risk and to saving, shaped by the you know this really, I think for many people, traumatic experience. Okay, Tim. Well, I think I know you're, you're a busy man, so maybe we could wrap it up there. Um, thanks again for taking the time to, to speak and um, thanks very much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. Okay, well, thanks everybody for listening to uh, that discussion with Tim. I found it very interesting. I hope you did too. Spread the word with friends and colleagues far and wide. If you enjoy what you hear, please consider subscribing at patreon.com forward slash at the margin. Thank you very much and all the best. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.